You're listening to Asbury University's Chapel Podcast, recorded live from our campus in Wilmore, Kentucky. Asbury's Chapel Service hosts speakers from around the world to inspire academic excellence and spiritual vitality. We hope you enjoy today's message. Good morning. We have an opportunity at the end of this message today to, um, to respond in a really sweet way to the invitation of Jesus, and that means that you need a post-it note. If you live on this side of Genesis 3, you need a post-it note, and I'll tell you what we're going to do with it, but it's really, I, I, I'm praying, have been praying, have, have been, I have just been very, very stoked about this morning, this moment, really excited. So for the last couple of days, as we've been walking uh, together through the incredibly adventurous book of Leviticus. Um, we've been learning some things about God and about ourselves, and we've been using sort of as a pattern the 12 steps of recovery, realizing that what the secular world uses to recover from their brokenness, is it's all rooted in the story of God and it tells me that we are all, all of us, all of us who live on this side of Genesis 3 are recovering from our own fallenness. So if you feel like you haven't got it all together yet, welcome to the human race. This, uh, on, on Monday, we learned that the beginning of wholeness and wholeness is that recognition that we are powerless against our own circumstances and that we need a power greater than ourselves to restore us to sanity. And so those first seven chapters of Leviticus taught us through the example of the Israelites and the sacrifice that that constant path beaten, beating back and forth to the door of the, the tent of meeting to make those sacrifices was a way to keep them constantly in the presence of God, constantly aware that there is a God and I'm not it. On Monday night, we, we talked about uh, uh, Step three, we became willing to turn our lives and our will over to the care of Jesus who can restore us to sanity. Until you have turned your life over to Jesus, you are insane. Some of you may still have remnants of that in your life now. But that's, it's true because only Jesus can make our, even our minds whole, our relationships whole. And so we talked about that um, passage where Nadab and Abihu, trying to circumvent the process, brought unholy fire into the tent, and it was uh, soundly rejected by God. And we discovered that in order to bring holy fire, if we're going to take holy fire out into the world, we have to honor the process of wholeness and holiness. Last night, we walked through those meticulous little rules and guidelines that were about health and things you eat and blemishes on your skin, and I know if you couldn't be there last night, you're, you're right now really regretting that, that decision. Um, but what we discovered was, and this is huge, that the, the principle behind all of that is that God is in the details. So if you think your little life, your little bank account, your tiny little bank account, <laughs> your, your little room, your tiny little room, your tiny little effort, your tiny little skill set, if you think that God doesn't care about that, you've got another think coming. It's Leviticus that teaches me 
that God is in the details of your life, that every cell of your being, every thought you have, every pain, every unresolved issue in your life, everything that worries you, God cares. God cares. Isn't that glorious? So this morning, set right in the middle of this week, also set right in the middle of Leviticus chapter 16, is this opportunity we have to bring all of our unresolved stuff and press it into the flesh of Jesus on the cross and trust that he is able to bring it, to bear it from death to life. Are you ready? It's the Day of Atonement. Leviticus 15, uh, 16, it's the holiest day of the year, Yom Kippur in Jerusalem. Probably today feels something like what our, our Christmas holiday feels like in that everything is closed. Every restaurant is closed. Even all the roads are closed. The airports are closed. And so you know what they do today uh, uh, in Israel on the uh, day of Yom Kippur? Families take their bicycles out into the interstate and ride up and down the interstate on their bikes. How cool is that? Think about riding up and down I-75, no traffic, just you and your bicycle. Some of you have fantasized about that. One day you'll get to go to Israel and do that. Um, so there's Western walls, uh, prayers, and there's songs and laments to atone for sin. The whole um, the whole, hol uh, or I guess, holy day, Yom Kippur, is about um, atoning for sin, reflecting on the year behind, praying for the year ahead, repenting for all you've done intentionally and unintentionally, which I really think is such a gentle thing, to ask for blessing over the year to come. So the month leading up to this day of atonement, making a, a fractured life whole again, is called the month of the shofar. A shofar is a ram's horn. And Orthodox Jews blow it every weekday during morning prayers, the whole month leading up to Yom Kippur. And then there is this final blast at the end of the Day of Atonement. And for Jews, that blast of the shofar, this ram's horn, you have to look it up later, um, it's more than a noise, it's spiritual warfare. The Talmud says one of the purposes of the shofar blast on the Day of Atonement is to confuse the devil. Isn't that awesome? The devil hears it as a victory blast, and so he assume, assumes that since uh, he hasn't won, he must have lost. And that their, their final victory at the end of the cosmic battle being waged over the world has been won. The enemy hears that blast, and he assumes he has been defeated. How cool is that? So this blast is victory, and it's prayer, and it's worship, and it's celebration, and hope, and it's intimacy with God because it comes at the time of prayer. In the Jewish world, it is a deeply meaningful sound, that shofar blast. Remember that. We'll come back to it. The Hebrew word for that blast re refers to the shout of war or alarm, but it's also like joy, a joyful war cry from someone who knows going into battle that the victory is already won. Come on. And it comes at the end of this day when the priests and the people examine their lives for cracks, for places where the sin of unforgiveness has seeped in and they atone through confession and sacrifice. Leviticus 16 describes that day and this whole chapter sits at the center of this book on holiness to teach us that the center of holiness, hear me my friends, the center of holiness is atonement. 
It's about taking the fractured relationships and the unresolved circumstances of our lives and offering them to the God who makes us whole again. So the priest is taught on the Day of Atonement to begin with himself, which I love, which is such a powerful recovery principle. So in Leviticus uh, chapter 16, we, we, it's, it, this is what it says in Leviticus 16, 11. Aaron shall bring the bull for his own sin offering, his own sin offering, make atonement for himself first and for his household. And he is to slaughter the bull for his own sin offering. We say it all the time in recovery, the only person I can fix is myself, myself. The only person I can change is myself. When we say that, we're practically quoting Leviticus 16, 11. And when those of us who practice the 12 steps get to step five and beyond, we're sitting right in the middle of Leviticus. So after the first three steps of the 12 steps of AA, the next five steps have to do with having the courage to change what I can change, which is myself making peace with what I can't change, which is everybody else. So step four, we make a searching and fearless moral inventory of ourselves. That's what we're going to do with that little post-it note in just a few minutes, just in like a, a micro uh, moment of, of step four. Step five, we admit to God, to ourselves, and to someone else the exact nature of our wrongs. That someone else you're going to admit to this morning, that, that act of coming forward is how you admit it to another human being. Step six, we become entirely ready to have God remove all these defects of character. We press our broken places into the cross and become entirely ready for Jesus to take our stuff into his flesh as he moves from death to life. Step seven, we humbly ask him to remove all our shortcomings. Why? Because we cannot do it ourselves. Step eight, we make a list of everybody else we've harmed. We become willing to make amends to them. All those steps are grounded in Leviticus 16, which Jesus brought right into the New Testament when he began to talk about confession. He told us that if we want to be whole, we need to deal with our own stuff first. He said, Matthew 7, 3 through 5, Why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, brother, here, let me get that little speck out of your eye. Well, you can't even reach him because you've got this huge thing sticking out of your eye. You hypocrite. Jesus says, first, take the plank out of your own eye, and then you'll see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. This is where atonement begins. It begins with me getting honest about my junk. Not so I can feel bad about it. Remember, my friends, there is no shame in Christ. But so my spiritual field of vision is cleared. A few years ago, I was part of an, uh, of an experiment with Safe House Outreach. Anybody here done Safe House Outreach in Atlanta? No, it's, pretty cool. it's a pretty cool opportunity if you ever get the chance to take a team down there. Um, they do a lot of youth groups. They do college groups as well. And um, I joined, uh, you know, they, were, they, were, they were trying to figure out, they do a day of a homeless day on the streets of Atlanta for teams, but they were trying to decide if it was safe enough to, um, f f you know, to do overnight, to do a homeless, like, overnight thing. And so they picked a 
four people who were stupid enough to say yes and think it would be fine to stay out on the streets of Atlanta all night long. And the four of us, the only four in the universe, I guess, who said yes, uh, slept on the, you know, we, we hung out in the streets of Atlanta, no money, no nothing, nothing, for 24 hours. That meant sleeping on the sidewalk in front of a, a church with a group of homeless people. We'd found some sleeping bags, so we had sleeping bags for the night, but most of them slept on cardboard. The next morning, somebody woke us up early in the morning. That somebody from the church, you gotta get off our sidewalk. Isn't that very church-like? And uh, all my new homeless friends, who I was, became friends the moment they did not attack me in the middle of the night. <laughs> all my new homeless friends, as soon as they got wake, uh, awakened, they picked up their cardboard, they folded it up, they carried it across the street, they stuffed it into this big shrub that was part of the landscaping in the median. It was almost surreal. I watched, I mean, like a dozen homeless people folded up cardboard big enough to sleep on, stuffed it into a sh some shrubbery, and it disappeared in there, literally disappeared in plain sight. And all day long, cars drove by that shrub with no idea it was full of people's bedding. And in the evening, those same homeless people went right back to those shrubs, pulled their cardboard out, and laid down on the sidewalk again. And when I saw that cardboard disappear like that into that shrub, I thought, what a metaphor, because I'm thinking about people who know how to stuff their feelings and memories in out-of-the-way places, functioning during the day, getting things done. Then, you know how it is, late at night when um, the, the worry and the anxiety surfaces or in times of stress, we, we, we go over to our emotional shrubbery and pull out our emotional cardboard, and rather than finding our home in Jesus, we go right back to our homeless state. Does that sound familiar to anybody in here? So atonement, atonement is about confessing the stuff we stuffed, about pulling out the signs of our spiritual distance from God, acknowledge them and acknowledging them not to provoke shame because there's no shame in Christ, but to reconnect with our spiritual home. So first we make atonement for ourselves and then for the things we know we've done that need confession. Um, and then the priest makes atonement for the space, which is so interesting. Leviticus 16, 15, and 16, he says, he shall then slaughter the goat for the sin offering for the people and take its blood behind the curtain, take its blood behind the curtain and do with it as he did with the bull's blood. He shall sprinkle it on the atonement cover and in front of it. And this way, he will make atonement for the place itself because of the uncleanness and rebellion of the Israelites whenever, whatever their sins have been. And they, he's to do the same for the tent of meeting, which is among them in the midst of their uncleanness. I love those two verses. There's so much grace here. There's atonement for, quote, whatever the people, People have done. Stuff they know about and stuff they don't know about. 
And then there's atonement for the space itself, almost as if to say that even the places that trigger your shame, maybe the whole fallen world, maybe everything on this side of Genesis 3, all of it imperfect, all of it requires grace. So Jesus taught us to pray, Matthew chapter um, 6, he taught us to pray, I don't even know why I'm looking this up because I, I know it, it's... Um, Forgive us our sins even as we forgive those who sin against us. Jesus is telling us this is, this is how the world and you and me are wired. In order to be free, we'll need to learn grace toward a fallen world and fallen people even as we are asking for grace for ourselves because the forgiveness we receive is inextricably connected to the forgiveness we give. So I'm thinking about people who are so self-focused. Not you, people you know. Limited in their vision of the world because of their incessant self-focus. They can't notice what they've done when they've done it. Someone whose plane has flown over the line into somebody else's airspace and they don't even know it because for them, that line is invisible. You know what I'm talking about? These are the ones Jesus prayed for on the cross when he prayed, forgive them, Father. They don't even know what they're doing. Forgive us our trespasses, Lord, when we fly over into someone else's airspace without even knowing it. But forgive us too, when we draw lines that other people cannot see and then hold them to standards they cannot keep, think about it. I draw a line someplace, maybe a line I've decided on because I've been so hurt somewhere along the way, but I'm the only one who can see the line. I'm the one who drew it, sort of like the line between countries on a map. You can see it on the map, but you can't see it from the air in real life. It doesn't exist. I've drawn a line you cannot see, so you don't know it's there until you cross it and then pow! You know, you, you got hit by my anger and my, in, my sensitivity, and you didn't even know the line was there. Let me hear it from my friends who have roommates in the room. Who bears the responsibility for forgiveness in that equation? The responsibility for invoking the grace is on me, Jesus says. Forgive me for drawing lines that make it increasingly difficult for others to stay in their own airspace. Atone for me when I don't realize I'm hurting other people. I have a sense that maybe this is what's meant in Leviticus chapter 16 when the priest is told to atone for whatever sins may have happened. The things they know about, the things you don't know about, and to do the same for the very space itself because we're always in each other's airspaces. And only when the Holy Spirit is in that space with us can we have a hope of walking in forgiveness. So first we make atonement. We seek forgiveness for ourselves. And then we seek forgiveness for a fallen world and for grace for the sacred spaces we occupy in community together. And then, and then, the priest seeks forgiveness on behalf of the people for their wickedness and rebellion. 
He says, Aaron is, when Aaron has finished making atonement for the, for the most holy place, the tent of meeting and the altar, he shall bring forward the live goat. He is to lay both hands on the head of the live goat and confess over it all the wickedness and rebellion of the Israelites, all their sins, and put them on the goat's head. That's the sad goat, isn't it? <laughs> That makes me sad for that goat. I had no clue, sort of like the Thanksgiving turkey. It was all fun and games until I found out they were going to fatten me up to eat me. And then you shall send the goat away into the wilderness in the care of someone appointed to the task, which is also kind of sad to me. The poor guy has to walk out of town with a goat. And the goat will carry it on itself all their sins to a remote place, and the man shall release it in the wilderness. Does the goat die? No. So holiness demands a response to sin. Sin carries consequences. We cannot generate our own holiness or, um, or accomplish our own atonement, our wholeness on our own steam. That requires a power greater than us. And third, while sin leads to death, forgiveness doesn't. The scapegoat doesn't die. Atonement for sin is life-giving. And what the Israelites did and what the Jews are still doing today, we believe has been accomplished once for all time through Jesus Christ, one sacrifice for all time that led not to death but leads to life. I'm like this even at home by myself. I absolutely... I get so excited about the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Do you feel it? So you've been called to live. Holiness calls you to live. It's not trying to suck all the fun out of your life. It's calling you to joy, to wholeness, to be completely set free, completely set free of all your unholy expectations of other people, all your deep-rooted bitternesses, all your unresolved issues. You get to be free, completely free, because your Savior is not dead. He lives, and he invites you to live with him. Sister Helen Prejean, the nun who ministered to both uh, Patrick Saunier, a killer, and Lloyd LeBlanc, the father of the victim, attached this beautiful image to her experience of walking in forgiveness. She said that for her, by dealing with both of these people, the victim and the, the, the one who, who killed, it was as if God was giving her a view of both arms of the cross. One arm nailed up for the sinner, one arm nailed up for the victim. And this picture, this idea, that one arm of the cross knows the pain of our sin and the other arm knows the pain of our wounds and centered completely perfectly between them is the very heart of the Father who knows both sin and pain and offers his own sacrifice so we can be whole, and what he offers, he expects. What he offers, he expects. So we're about to be given an opportunity to place on this cross a piece of forgiveness 
in our own life. It may be an unresolved relationship or an old wound that festers. It may be an unconfessed sin or a root of bitterness. Because all of us live on this side of Genesis 3. All of us, all of us, all of us need grace. So it begins with forgiveness. So when I ask you, what's weighing heavily on you this morning? What bitterness or unforgiveness or brokenness needs to be pressed into his flesh? So I just wrote hurts I hold on to. Father, heal me. Father, forgive me. It doesn't have to be much, but Jesus knows my heart when I confess those very vulnerable places where I still hold little seeds of bitterness. We've been given both the grace and an invitation through the cross to enter into wholeness and holiness, and it begins there. So no matter what the cost to our pride, we're called to make peace with any, anybody, anybody who's hurt us, whom we've hurt. It's my responsibility as a follower of Jesus to walk in forgiveness. When we forgive and seek atonement, we act like Jesus. Forgiveness is why Jesus was born. It's why he lived. It's why he died. And his resurrection proves that forgiveness can be complete, that we don't have to carry around the pain of shame or guilt. We don't have to bear bitterness toward ourselves or other people. We don't have to constantly be defensive about our airspace. Done is done because of Jesus. So when Jesus finished the work of your atonement, when Jesus had cried out again in a loud voice. You know what that cry is? It's a teruah cry. It's a shofar cry. It's a day of atonement cry. When he cried out in a loud voice, he gave up the spirit, and in that moment, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. Remember, Aaron took the sacrifice behind the curtain, and God took Jesus behind the curtain, and the earth shook, and the rocks split, and the tombs broke open, and the bodies of many holy people who had died were raised to life. No wonder the enemy got it, that he has already defeated and when you come and you press your unforgiveness, your bitterness, your hurt, your pain into the flesh of Jesus, you can be sure he takes it behind the curtain. He cries out that victory cry. He goes to the Father on your behalf, and it is finished.